Welcome to the Oxford Sidebar podcast for the 16th of January from the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association. Our speaker this month is Dr. Sonia Contera, the co-director of the Oxford Martin Program on Nanotechnology Physics Department at the University of Oxford. She spoke on nanoparticles in medicine. Technology. I'm a physicist. Um, I work in nanotechnologies because um, in my generation, unfortunately, um, many of us, sort of that was the 1990s when we finished our physics degree, we were quite interested in, view, in these new kind of techniques. Uh, they were actually microscopes I was interested in. That could allow for the first time ever to look at materials at the nanometer scale and beyond. So basically, this, this is scanning probe microscopes that invented in IBM in Zurich in the 1980s, 1990s. They got a Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize about that. That would enable people to see atoms for the first time ever. And for us, that was very exciting because it was very difficult, very different to imagine atoms coming from the structures and getting data from mathematical things and then atoms might be like that. They're actually seeing them. And these new techniques not only would allow you to see matter at the nanometer scale and beyond, but it would allow you to interact with it, and some of them you could actually push them or pull them. So you would have for the first time ever your kind of nano scale Lego machine. You could actually have a machine that would act as a kind of interface between us and the nanometer world. Um, so that was very exciting for me and for other people in my generation. So we started working with these microscopes, and we were the first ones talking about nanotechnology. So actually, there was no nanotechnology before you could actually see it. There was lots of nanoscale objects in nature, but you couldn't see them, so there was no nanotechnology. By the way, you can interrupt me if you want when I'm talking, okay? So why nanotechnology and medicine? So a nanometer is something very small, you know, is six zeros followed by one. Uh, meter. So that means basically the same ratio of a nanometer to a meter than uh, half of that glass to the diameter of the Earth. But it doesn't mean very much apart from the fact that it's very small. There's a few ones. Well, I think that nanometer uh, has an interesting meaning for everybody is when you realize that the molecules of life are nanometer scale machines. Uh, your protein, your DNA, the lipids in your cells, the hormones you have around your body, many of these are nanoscale objects. And why? You know, there's something special about these nanometer scale, nanoscale objects, especially when they are put in water, which is what we are, right? It's a point where sort of physics and chemistry and biology converges because, you know, these nanometer scale objects can interact with water in interesting ways, and they can deform the structure, and they can communicate, they can use mechanics, and they can use electrostatics, and they can use chemistry to communicate. That's why, uh, for a physicist that started to look at nanoscale objects, we all started to become very interested in biology, because we were trying to use and modify matter at the nanometer scale, and then we say, wait a minute, biology has already done it. Evolution has created us using nanotechnology. So that's the beginning, sort of, in the 1990s, of the idea that nano, bio, and medicine might have something to do and an interesting interaction to, to do. So some people like myself are starting to use these nanometer techniques, these nanoscale um, microscopies, to look, try to design microscopes to look at these biological molecules. Um, up to then, you know, electron microscopes were starting to get better. You would get dry pictures of biological matter, and you would make some kind of cartoons out of that that the biologists were using yeah. to design drugs. But our objective was to be able to see these molecules, these proteins, this DNA, directly in liquid, in the real environment, as they are. We wanted to see the machines, the biological machines, working. So we started to succeed, and we become good at it. I have some pictures here, for example, I brought for you to look at. On the right-hand side, this is from my lab. These are potassium channels. These are responsible for lots of diseases in your body when they malfunction. You see these little blobs with a little hole in the middle? Um, so these things are about five nanometers across. They're sitting in, the, in your cells and discriminate, discriminate between sodium and potassium in your body. You know you have to have salt and you have to have potassium and you need magnesium 
and all these things. And if you don't have them, your body doesn't work. And somehow your body is able to distinguish between these things. So this is what we are studying now with the microscope. How do they do it and why? This is DNA. In my lab, we were the first group actually who could distinguish the double helix of DNA in liquid. And we can wind DNA and see how soft and hard is DNA. And I'm already telling you the clue of what we do. We don't really see and look at dry structures like biology has been done up to now. But we can use our new nanoscale techniques to grab these molecules, to push these molecules. So we're starting to work with them, like, you know, like the beginning of physics of the macro world. You know, when physics were going around pushing and trying to understand sort of the reverse engineering of biology. We're trying to do. So um, we're creating a new discipline of biological, a new field of biological physics. And we look at biology in a different way. We don't look at the chemistry of biology, but we look at the chemistry and the physics of biology. For example, we're learning that your cells communicate not only chemically, which is what you usually hear, but they communicate mechanically uh, in your body, and it sounds like normal. Your body feels, your cells feel each other, pull from each other, and this mechanical communication malfunctions in disease. For example, we're learning that the first thing you have in a cancer, the first the beginning of cancer, is one of the markers is that cells start to communicate in different ways, and that, for example, cancer cells are softer than non-cancer cells, and when they, the tumor grows and grows, the, the cells become softer and softer, and that's why you have metastasis, because they become so soft that they can escape the tumor, and start going into the bloodstream and find other places in your body and stick there. So cancer is not only chemistry, there's a lot of physics to cancer. And we think that these properties could be also targets for diagnosis and for disease. So I'm already telling you that this new way of seeing biology is already bringing ideas for diagnosis and diseases that are different, that are outside what pharmaceutical companies are doing. So basically what happens is that we're getting better and better at controlling materials at the nanometer scale. You have, I mean, we're still very far away from controlling nanomaterials, but we're getting better at, you know, you hear the hype with graphene all over the place and carbon nanotubes and all these things. We're getting better at them, we're getting better at using them in liquid. Um, I don't know if you want to see this, for example, carbon nanotubes that are in my lab, solubilized in water. Someone wants to have a look at it, I can pass them around, yeah. Um, so basically the idea is that with these nanometer scale machines, we can both identify disease, because we can see the molecules and we can see how they function and how they malfunction. And we could also make targets for these diseases. And this target, this, this, it would be like a like kind of nano bullet that would bring both the conventional chemistry that we are using now in drugs, but we could use a kind of way of directing using nanotechnology, the drug to the pilot, right? Using the physics of nanoparticles in liquid. All this is evolving and we're still far from that, but we think we will reach that point. So the first application that nanotechnology is having right now in medicine, and the first drugs are being approved right now, is for drug delivery in cancer. So you all know that when you have cancer, you have, uh, you have chemotherapy. So chemotherapy, the different drugs that you use for chemotherapy, basically what you try to do is to stop the growth of cancer cells. And to do that, you need to inject your, and they, they do it in different ways, they target the DNA in different ways. But what you do is to inject an enormous amount of drugs so it reaches the target. What it means is that it poisons the whole body. So one of the first things that our technology is doing is to be able to grab these drugs, concentrate them in a small bubbles, which are made of lipids, which is something we have in our, in our cells, um, and be able to target them to the tumor so they release the drug more concentrated where it's more needed. So we could reduce the drugs of chemotherapy and be more effective. Of course, the dream would be to be able to create your nanoscale bullet thing and exactly go where it has to go and kill the cancer. We're still far from that. But the, I think in the last year, something like 10, 15 drugs delivery systems have been approved in the US that help to deliver drugs to the cancer in a much more effective way. 
So I think cancer will be the first place that we will benefit from our technology. Um, in my lab and my collaborators are working in using nanotechnology for delivering um, very specific drugs inside the cells, but using the, not the chemistry of the cell, but the physics of the cell. This thing I was telling you before, that the cells are softer than other cells, so we can use a sort of physical properties to get into cancers. So that's a bit of the things we're doing. Another, uh, another um, field where nanotechnology is starting to make a big impact is in biosensing. So biosensing is the art of trying to find something in your body that you need to measure, like a pregnancy test or insulin. Uh, for example, in, in the case of, of diabetic people, for the use of putting insulin in the body. I don't know if you know any diabetes around you, probably yes, because it's a lot of diabetes. Um, many of them need to prick their finger twice a day, every day of their lives, which is a rather crude thing to do if you measure the future. So I think we're getting quite close to nanoscale sensors that we would either implant in the body or for example some uh, i think there's an american company who's managed to make a kind of contact lens who will measure your glucose directly and automatically the goal is of course and this is the field that nanotechnology is working close to which is elementary to get that and communicate it to your mobile phone we're not far from that so we can absolutely forget about pricking your finger twice a day the ultimate goal, and it's already working in the lab, so this is not science fiction, is to, and people have done that in the States, to make some kind of tattoos, and you plant in your, in your skin, they measure the glucose or whatever you want to measure in your body, and not only communicate it to the outside world, but it can release the drug in a clever way as you need. Um, again, so it will be a drug delivery system, implantable drug delivery systems that are both able to sense what you need and release it when you need it. And it might sound very science fiction, but we really, we are much closer to this than we are, for example, of, of the drug delivery system for cancer. Again, this will depend on the level of funding we get in our field, which is going down increasingly. And these things obviously are obviously for me and the technology they will happen in Europe because of the level of funding we have in Europe for this research. So it will probably come from Asia or from the States. Uh, places like Korea are investing a lot in these new technologies. So it might come from Samsung, I wouldn't be surprised in 10 years' time. Also, the military is investing a lot in this. Um, the American military, there's a lot of interest in, in all these sensors. There's a center in MIT of the country, nanotechnology for the soldier, or something like that. Lots of uh, new uh, innovations from the military, and they actually test them further. Um, another field that I'm quite interested in and I'm very actively working in is in the field of tissue engineering. Um, all of you are hearing lots about stem cells and other things. Um, there was a Nobel Prize this year for stem cells. Um, basically, stem cells are cells that, again, they're very soft and they're like primitive cells, and whatever you put them, they can turn into the cell you want of the body and replace it. Well, that's true to an extent, and that's why biologists do, and they just add chemicals to them and they transform them. Actually, your body is more complex than just cells. Between the cells, you have something called the extracellular matrix, which is a matrix, a mesh, in which the cells are embedded. So your body is a kind of mesh with all these cells put in this mesh. And this mesh is nanoscale cables. The nanocables is things like collagen, hyaluronic acid, these sort of things they advertise in creams for not getting wrinkled, because the problem you have when you get wrinkled is that the mesh gets blocky, and that's why your cells go down. So that's why all this advertising about collagen and all that. So all these nanoscale wires are keeping your, your tissues together. 
and they, they, this, they're giving yourselves mechanical as well as chemical information. So when you have a big wound or a heart attack or your spine breaks, what happens is that the information that you give to these cells is lost. You have this nanoscale cable get broken, and even if you put cells or stem cells or whatever you want to put in there, because they don't have that nanoscale information, you just form a scar. So one, and that's what, what is a scar. Uh, basically, the cells don't fit, and you have tissue that doesn't have this, it's not as nice, it doesn't have the same, we call it mechanical properties, it's not as elastic, it's not as nice. And you have a harder tissue there. This is a problem, for example, in heart attack. You have a heart attack, and then you have a big scar in your heart. And it's a very interesting experiment someone did, all these doctors, they got some mice to get heart attacks, don't ask me how they do these things, some neurobiologists. And um, so basically they injected stem cells into, into the heart to see if the heart will recover. And obviously it didn't recover. And the interesting thing was that the stem cells they injected there, they translated, they, they transformed into kind of bone cells. And why was that? Because the scar was as stiff as bone. So basically what we learned is that stem cells are able to turn into the stiffness of the thing they bind to. And there's another experiment that people put stem cells on a soft uh, polymer, as soft as your brain, and these stem cells turn into something pretty similar to neurons. So what we learned is that if we're clever enough and you give the right clues to these tissues, they can regenerate into pretty much whatever you like. If you're clever and you make a very nice mesh, like, you know, remember this nanoscale cables, this collagen, you make a kind of artificial collagen, this artificial extracellular matrix that has the right chemistry and the right physics. You can turn your stem cells into what you want, but we need to create these materials first. So this is something we're doing in my lab. I got some of these materials here. I'll pass it around. So basically we create some nanoporous scaffold so very similar to the cellular matrix, where we put the signals we want in it. Uh, for example, um, this gives hope to uh, spinal cord injuries. And this is already done in the labs in, in Harvard. So when you have a spinal cord injury, the, the problem is your cells, it can, you can never recover because the cells don't form connections again. Neurons don't grow. So what people have seen is that putting them in a mesh that is electrically conductive, makes them communicate again. And again, it's done in mice. So it gives hopes to recovering spinal cord injuries with these clever materials that will be able to will help the body to regenerate. In my lab, we're trying to make these clever materials so they work initially, and then slowly they're biodegradable. So initially, so you make them, the body to start to regenerate itself, and then it disappears. So we can have uh, kind of a scarless wounds. Um, the military again are starting to try these things. Um, so in the Iraq war, they already had this clever bandaging, which has this nanoscale structure that is also antibacterial. So when soldiers have an enormous wound, instead of putting normal bandaging into it, they put a nanoscale, sort of nano mesh scale bandaging, and it's, it's helping a lot. Helping a lot because they don't, they're not getting infections and they are recovering with much less scarring. So, we're at the beginning of this technology, and we all hope this again uh, some experiments that have been done with uh, heart attacks in mice, where they put again a conductive mesh to help the, the heart to recover and the cells of the heart to communicate with each other, and it's working, it works in the lab. So, we're at the beginning of understanding how we can give clues to the body to regenerate itself. Uh, we are in the first, in the first the stages of this technology, but you know, I think in 20 years from now we will be quite far again with funding keeps coming. Um, people are using these technologies, and this is something I want to tell you, it's quite exciting. Uh, so it's, uh, there's a fantastic lab in Harvard for, for Mooney Lab, and these guys are, are, are quite leading this idea of giving physical clues to the body to help the body to regenerate. So they got mice, and they induced in the mice skin cancer. Again, this terrible thing. <laughs> I don't know how they do. And then they got um, one of these nanoscale scaffolds that I got here. So this is the scaffold. This, I'm gonna pass it around. 
uh, this is one of the scaffolds that um, is grating. If you look at it in an electron microscope, it looks like that at a nanometer scale. It's, it's like a mesh, what I was telling you before, at a nanometer scale. And if you see, you can, you can, we can shape it in any in any shape. And actually, I'm, I'm having our project, so we can make these things compatible with 3D printers. So we can actually print them into shapes, and we can put it in the body or whatever. So these guys in Harvard, what they did is to um, train the body immune system. So. This is made of uh, carbon nanotubes that I passed before because I want to no, and chitosan, which is a very interesting polymer that comes out of the shells of crabs and shrimps. Uh, so it's very cheap, very abundant, um, and very biocompatible. And it's actually the technique that crabs use to create their shells. And actually, we, the technique we use to grow our teeth and everything, we make a kind of nanoscale mesh that mineralizes itself. Actually, I'm quite interested in this idea of tooth regeneration because I think our dentistry is rather primitive still. And there's an enormous field of, of nano in dentistry. Basically, you still don't know how to kill bacteria in your teeth. You just cut the things off, which is rather brutal. And I think, and it's already uh, quite in labs that you can kill bacteria in a, with, with uh, silver nanoparticles or, or some other nanoparticles and it will be permanent. And um, actually, they are again designing materials and tattoos that you could put in your body and react to, to bacteria. I mean, right now it's in the labs, there's no funding for these things, and I think there's not much interest in this to succeed. Because basically, for everything I'm telling you, if it would succeed, it would be the end of conventional medicine. So you can see, this is not something that's going to get a lot of funding to start with. Because there's a lot of interest against this. But okay, it's so interesting at the conceptual level that it will happen. That's why places like Korea are very keen on this. Because Korean economy is going up. They have a culture based on education. Confucianist culture of education, education. They have the example of Japan of getting rich with technology. And they don't have a pharma industry. And they see this as an opportunity for them to actually keep the patents for the technology of the future. So there's many emerging economies that are thinking this will be our chance. When the conventional things start to go down, we can go up. And places like China, Korea, and Brazil are very interested in these technologies. And they're putting a lot of money, much more than we are in all this. So I think it's also an interesting economical debate that all this technology will bring about. So I never finished the story of the cancer vaccine. So what these guys in Harvard did was to train the immune system of the rats using these meshes to kill the cancer. So they, they put in this mesh, they implanted in the mice, and they mixed together signals for bacterial recognition with cancer recognition. So they tricked the body of the mice to think that the, this, this cancer, this skin cancer they were having, was actually an infection of bacteria. And the body got rid of it. So you can see that this new material, this new way of seeing, of mixing physics, material science, chemistry, and biology, is bringing lots of new people having new ideas that we think, uh, I think, that will be the future of, of medicine and indeed of biology. So basically, um, this, as I told you before, there's a few, the, the first products are coming to the market. So some drug delivery systems for cancer. You already have materials for regenerating bones, and, and it's getting much better. There's a lab in um, Imperial College, led by a woman who's very interesting, uh, Molly Stevens, that is already commercializing some of these ideas for regenerating bones. So um, bandages. Actually, I saw in Boots for the first time the first clever blaster that has nanotechnology. It doesn't say it, I have bought them. They're made of alginate, which is a seaweed that, like Kaitosan, also makes this kind of mesh. And uh, they sell them for a few grams already. This comes from the soldiers. And now you can already buy them. They don't say what it is, they just say clever blaster. I was meaning to get some and I couldn't find them. Yeah, so there's already a few products. So another thing that is creams, instead of you know injecting or drinking medicine, creams that can go through your skin and 
So it's starting to be a new product with nanotech, but we are really at the very, very, very beginning of, 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 the, of this technology. And of course, there's a huge risk. I didn't. I wanted to talk about the risk of all these things uh, in the end, and and that's one of the reasons why many pharmaceutical companies are not interested in going to, which is the toxicity of these materials. Um, we need to create a kind of new toxicological essays for all these new materials. Uh, they have. They can be very beneficial. But at the same time, they can have effects in the body that we don't know. And one of the things of my field that has been quite clever, I think, compared to others, is that uh, we're trying to learn from GM foods and, and nuclear energy and try to be maybe slow down on our research and application and spend more time in studying the toxicity aspects of nanotechnology to humans, to animals, and to the environment. And I must say, like, while Europe is being quite slow and boring uh, in researching for applications of medical applications of biotechnology, uh, Europe is actually leading the way in uh, toxicity studies. Uh, basically, with big part in the European Union trying to prevent and to make legislation that prevents uh, accidents, nanotechnological accidents. Again, in Europe, we are very focused on this, and I think it's a good idea. And I think that's what the European public wants. We're very conservative, and we see technology as a threat. This is not the case in Asia. In Asia, they see technology as a way Japan managed to get, you know, to be the second biggest economy in the world. And they are not so interested in this. Japan is now, because now it's a rich country, and, and now it's also very conservative, and they want to be healthy and happy. But Koreans, and especially Chinese, are maybe not so interested in researching this nanotech. So you could see that, that that would push them forward in applications. But if, for example, a big accident happens in China, it will have consequences for everybody. Um, one of the problems that we all see that China could have is that we dump all our microelectronics in China. There's, you know, there's a lot of toxicity to the environment, not only coming from the materials, but also coming from nanomaterials. And, and at some point, China will have to pay a big price for, for all this contamination of the ecosystems. Okay, so I think that was kind of overview of the field of nanotechnology in medicine. Um, I'm very happy to get questions from you and discuss anything. <laughs> Very big, you walk through all our body. But the way neurons communicate via synapses is nanoscale because there's a few proteins there. No, I'm not meaning that. Um, I mean, the, not, the scaffold that I was talking about is not the cells, it's this, they're really proteins that make fibers. Um, and actually, I have a picture of those fibers. They make these fibers that are kind of scale in, uh, in size. And they're all over your body. Basically, it's, it's a mesh. I don't know if it's a mesh that we have in the body to keep you know, all the cells together. They're not linking with each other. In some places, they are linking with each other. But in most tissues, what you have is this, this just a, it's a mesh. It's a kind of a sponge. Nanoscale is the only thing in which your cells are stuck in and gives the shape. That's why, for example, I was telling you, that's collagen is one of these scales. So when your collagen is becomes old, your whole skin Because the mesh is not so elastic anymore. So no, it's Yes. Yeah. Can you give us an example of how they do it? Okay, so. Uh, 
they create these small bubbles called vesicles out of lipids. Uh, lipids have been used in biotech labs for a long time. So this inside these little bubbles, which is about 100 nanometers or below, so it's basically the size of the virus. Sometimes some people are actually using virus. Um, so inside this bubble, they put drugs. Um, sometimes it's not inside the bubble, but in the surface of the bubble. And the surface of the bubble will have some kind of markers, antibodies, that are specific to the cancer cells they're looking for. So the cancer cells, you know, every cell is different. And a cancer cell does, you know, we've spent millions of years, millions, no, years of money, and years, study, a lot of years, studying cancer. So we know a lot about the biology of cancer. So we know, for example, that they have these little proteins in the surface that healthy, some healthy cells don't have, and you know, there's an enormous amount of biological research of cancer. So what you do is to put some molecules that stick to those, and only stick to those. And Japanese uh, scientists discovered an effect, which is called the EPR effect, which basically when you form a tumor, a tumor is a very nasty thing, and it grows, and, and then produces the veins to, to bring blood and feed itself, and these veins it produces, uh, they're more porous. They're not the same as our healthy uh, veins. They're different. And what they found with Japanese scientists is when you put these nanoparticles, even if you don't put any targeting in them, naturally they flow through your body and they go through these veins into the tumor. So only by putting the drugs in these little vessels, you're enhancing the uptake by the, by the cancer. So what you do is to try or as for example one of my ideas is to try to improve that sort of porosity of these cancers, improve a, a bullet for that porosity and at the same time put these chemical markers to bind to the cancer cell. And then of course you need to create something that bursts when it goes in. So there's lots of tricks. Like for example sometimes the the pH, basically the, the amount of ions and the amount of protons you have in a cancer cell will be different. The charge of the water is different inside and outside. So you create your bubble, so when it goes in, burst naturally. So we have all sorts of tricks that we're learning of how to, to make them burst, of which, I mean, we're slow. One of the main problems we have with delivering cancer drugs would be that you inject them in the body, for example, and then they cluster all together. Because our blood is a very thick, it's a very thick liquid, and it's very difficult to be fluid in blood. Which is a great trick. So many of us are interested in red blood cells, and we study red blood cells, and we study how come red blood cells never stick. You know, can we reproduce that with some kind of vessel that can go through the body without never sticking and reaching the target? So the advance of the understanding of biology goes in parallel to understanding of the nanotechnology. So the ideas from one field fit the other field. And, and, and so yeah, there's a lot of ideas and a lot of research in drug delivery systems because another some people are having a sort of more direct, maybe less clever but more effective approach. There's a company in Germany already commercializing these magnetic nanoparticles. So you direct them, you put them in the body near the tumor and you direct them from outside the body with a magnetic field. So you know for example you do your MRI, you know where the tumor is. And then you create a magnetic field that brings those nanoparticles into the tumor from outside. And then they use, they use the magnetic field to make them shake, so they heat them up, and by heat they make them burst. So all these things are already happening. And, and also, I mean, they're not commercial, but they're happening. Other type of uh, nanoparticles for cancer is for, for diagnostic, for increasing MRI contrast, less toxic, than the current agents. So, a lot of developments for this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, there's quite a lot of the ideas uh, uh, from biomimicry ideas for, yeah. to help them uh, come up with plausible things to do yeah. in nanotechnology. Are there any forums where to help like, nanotechnologists and engineers get together with biologists? Or yeah, is it actually, yes. Um, for example, in my institute, she was talking about, I founded the institute with the molecular cell biologists. Um, we usually work in very multidisciplinary teams. So I'm a physicist, I work with chemists, engineers, material scientists, biologists, which makes it a very hard field uh, because you need sort of. But 
and also makes it in the practical aspects of nanotech and our research difficult to fund because we don't fit any of the established sciences. So it's very hard for us to actually convince people that this will work because people are not multidisciplinary. And this is by nature multidisciplinary science. So again, this is an interesting cultural component to all this. Countries like the UK, which have a strong science tradition, or Germany, where this, the subjects are very established for hundreds of years. In a way, it's more difficult. And again, countries like Asia, that they are, or I'm from Spain, which where science is a, uh, hasn't had such a long history, it's much more natural for people to be multi multidisciplinary. Um, so it's an interesting cultural component. I, I did my PhD in Japan, and I spent a long time in Asia. I just went back from there. And, and when I go to Japanese labs, like in Tokyo University and Osaka University, they're actually multidisciplinary. And I come back to Europe, and I'm always fighting the physics department. You know. And actually, Oxford is quite open for these things, surprisingly enough. But uh, um, at least my department, not the biochemistry department, but the biologist. <laughs> physicists are more open. Right? I think once you solo quantum mechanics, you can solo anything else. And, uh, so physics is usually a very good environment. So in the States, the best nanomedicine labs come from physicists, and they are in hospitals. So it's already happening with a lot of multidisciplinarity. But it's, we are also a bit of, in the beginning, a bit of transgressive. Yes. Did you hear about the funding between the work and the school research? Funding is difficult anyway. Uh, especially now. I'm a starting of closing the shop here and go somewhere else. Um, no, it's a starting we're starting not to be able to do it anymore. Forget about competing. Um, so that's why we spend a lot of time traveling as well. Funding from toxicology is almost impossible in this country. The UK is not funding research at all on toxicity and nanotechnology. The European Union has put some funds in it, and, and there's a European networks on that. Uh, I wouldn't say it's so yeah, this is a problem in Europe. We cannot say nanotechnology because people wouldn't buy it. Yeah. Oh, that was going to be my question. Are people afraid of it because of what this Prince the, Charles said a few years ago? Yeah, this is again going back to the yeah to the cultural aspects of technology in Europe. Um, in Spain, would be fine, for example. Spain regard and um, it's a very big cultural difference between countries. In the UK, I think it is something. I mean, uh, people know more than this. I'm not a sociologist, but anyway, the UK has suffered the, the consequences of technology more than other countries. The Industrial Revolution was put on here, and I think there's an intrinsic you know, apprehension when you talk about developments of technology because it can be toxic, it can be difficult. Um, countries like Japan see technology as the thing that took them from being nobody to be a big world player. So in Japan you can go, it's a bit too much, you can go to, uh, and you know, all these movies about robots, they're not afraid of interact, it's a very different mindset. Um, you go to supermarkets in Japan and you can buy yogurt with platinum nanoparticles, so I'm not sure I will buy <laughs> I did buy myself a, a, a toothbrush with cargo nanotubes, um, and, it's, and the selling point is nano. Everything is nano in Asia. They like it. It's new. It's modern. They like new and modern. And we don't like it. Uh, we are afraid. So places like Germany or the UK are very reluctant. So if you do nano, it's hidden. Um, so L'Oreal has a fantastic green. It's actually quite cheap. And I used it. I said, this is very good. And it has, it has nano liposomes in it. Because it really goes into your extracellular matrix. And it's never written. L'Oreal invests a lot, interestingly, in this kind of technology because they are quite interested in shampoos and, and conditioners. And, and it's actually an interesting thing for cosmetics and nanotech. Most, um, for example, suntan creams, the, ones, the chemical suntan creams we use now, they're quite toxic for your skin. For your skin. But already in the market, when you have a suntan cream that is 50 and it's not white, 
it has nanoparticles, it's cutting. Titanium nanoparticles in it, titanium oxide. Um, they don't say it again, um, but it's not toxic. It's actually very good. They did their research on toxicity 10 years after they started even, but anyway, the skin, because the skin, luckily, the skin uh, renews itself very often. So it, it penetrates a couple of layers of the skin, but then the skin gets rid of them. So our skin has to evolve to the nanoparticles that are naturally in the environment of the earth, because there are nanoparticles everywhere, and we can get rid of them. So you can see, but in, in Europe it's not retained anywhere. And this is a problem, I find. They're, they're so afraid of nano that they don't talk about nano, and then it's when you can have a vaccine. For example, you have silver nanoparticles right now everywhere. In socks, they call it silver technology, silver. they never say nano. But silver nanoparticles are actually quite toxic to bacteria at least. We know that. Um, you know, I don't know if you know, if you don't have bacteria in your gut, you're done. Most of the cells of your body are not your own cells, they're actually bacteria. We live in a kind of symbiotic environment with bacteria. And the problem with silver nanoparticles is that they produce, must produce without any control. And the nanoparticles we put in products, they don't have control size. So you have anything from two nanometers to 200 nanometers. So the big ones or whatever are not gonna be toxic, but you have a specific size that will be toxic, but it's completely not controlled because it's very expensive, very difficult to So right now I went, there's, a, there's even an app for iPhones these days that you can see all the nanotech products in the market. Someone in the States is doing this, they're getting funding for this, so people know it. And it's in, Baby uh, bottles, pets blankets, um, all these baby things so they don't get contaminated. And I wouldn't give myself a bottle with silver nanoparticles. So you can see it's starting to be a complicated uh, interface with all these materials. So Europe is leading, and in a very good way, the way to uh, regulations of nanomaterials. And I have been involved, and I'm still involved in a few networks to try to speak to regulators about the risk so we can we can go safely, maybe slower but it's safer. Yeah the plaster. Yeah the thing is this plaster yeah you can see now uh, this company Sablon who has quite a few new products in the market for better healing. So they have a gel, which I think is, is also creating a kind of mesh and keeping the humidity. So basically to regenerate tissue you need to keep it humid and you need to give it this nanoscale food. And someone has the plasters and the screens, and the plaster is, is made for really something that is really not toxic. This is not the silver nanoparticles, I have used it on this one. So you put the plaster and you keep it there for two weeks. If it's, it's not for a big thing, one or two weeks. So you create an environment for the skin cells to sort of regenerate in an environment that both sides, sort of the inside of the skin cell and the outside of the skin cell is, is pretty similar. So there's this nanoscale little fibers, but I think they come from algae, so they're really not toxic. And, and actually we use them for in the field of tissue engineering. Um, and, that, and they create, you know, a humid, nice environment, antiseptic. Because the nice thing of these fibers is that they prevent bacterial infection. So you have two, two things in one. You create a nice environment for, for tissue to re be repaired, preventing bacteria from going in, and you reduce the scar. I think we're going to get much better in bandages very soon. Okay. Oh, this is very controversial. Um, I think it's controversial in a weird way because very often it's non-scientists who are talking about this. Um, but basically, for example, gold, nanoscale gold, can be toxic or not toxic regardless of the of the size. So if it's round, it's non-toxic. And actually, it can be used these days and it's been used sexually to get rid of Alzheimer's plaque. But if gold can, it's like triangular nano, it, the edges are more reactive. So that can react. Can be good or can be bad. So basically it's a convolution of charge, size, and shape. 
in conflict with. Um, we're learning more and more about it, and obviously, once you put it in the body, the thing that happens to nanomaterials is once you swallow it or you put it in the body, these nanomaterials are immediately coated with protein, protein from your saliva, protein from your blood, and create something we call the protein corona, and the body will react to that coat. So. Some groups, I mean, there's increasing amount of money being put in understanding that process. Once the protein is here, then goes into your body, then what happens? And then your immune system will, will depend. I mean, basically what people are finding is that most nanoparticles, the liver can get rid of them. Our system is made to get rid of nanoparticles, and most of them are not toxic. Apart from perhaps very small sizes, like one, two nanometer might be too small for our system to detect. Well, we know also it's like carbon nanotubes, small carbon nanotubes, single-world carbon nanotubes, since the body can't get rid of them, uh, which is a problem for drug deliveries, and we have to learn how to use that. Um, but for example, multi-world carbon nanotubes, which are quite hard, the body recognizes them, but they're so hard that when the uh, immune system tries to eat them, it can't, they're too hard, and it produces something similar to asbestosis. So we learn it, in this case, it's not shape, is not charge, is stiffness. Okay, so it's a convolution of a few factors that we learn. Again, the fact that many nanoparticles accumulate in the in the liver would be very useful for liver cancer. So what is good for one thing is bad for others, and, and, and the whole thing, if it's toxic for a healthy cell, it's also maybe toxic for a cell you want to get rid of. So it will be the art of discriminating <laughs> good and bad and how we use it. Basically, we're at the beginning of some biochemistry. It's a new, it's a new thing. We need to learn from the beginning. Yeah. Do you see a future in sort of metal-derived nanoparticles, or do you think that science is going to use polymers? I think we will use everything. We use everything, and composites, and metal, non-metal, semiconductor, non-semiconductor, depending on the application. Polymers are good for some things, you can design them, uh, silver, uh, metal nanoparticles are great because of the properties that they can be very useful, for example, for screening things in the body. We'll use them all once we learn how to control and apps, you know. The, the thing, the difficulty in nanomaterials is to make them in a reproducible way. We can make silver nanoparticles, but each of them comes in different size and different shape. It's still, we still cannot control most of the materials. You can do it better with polymers. We're learning. We're learning. And we're getting a lot of inspiration from, from biology. Depending on what you use it for, I think it is. Okay. Because now, one yeah. of the things of nanotech it can be done very cheaply, mm. uh, especially for some applications. Okay. Of course, if you're going to create a drug delivery system that targets a very specific cancer in the body, that's going right. to be very expensive. Right. But other applications, like I was saying before, bandages and all that, it can be mass produced from very cheap materials. So it will be more expensive than conventional bandaging, but it will be maybe in the long term cheaper because you don't need to change it, it doesn't right. get contaminated. So right. I think it depends on the application. So you mentioned that the pharmaceutical companies are not picking up this technology Some because of the technology, it threatens it. Do you see then though a different field coming in and potentially replacing pharmaceutical companies? Well, pharmaceutical companies have a lot of problems. I'm not an expert in it, but they have yeah. a lot of problems finding new drugs, right. the way they are being established. It's a sort of system that is starting not to work, they don't make money. Right. So they're very conservative by nature because they have to keep happy all the all the all the people that are giving them money. Um, so what they're doing right now is actually they wait for a spin out companies from universities, researchers, small things to succeed and patent and then they buy the rights to that. 
But I do see that there's a possibility of big Asian companies, for example. Samsung is increasingly investing in health. Right. Companies like Panasonic. Uh, oh, okay. That they come from the field of devices. They come from the field of biodevices. Yeah. Or creating, you know, machines for knowing what is going on in the body, diagnostics. But they will have that technology that it enables them to do something else. Right. So it will be an interesting evolution. Okay. Yeah, that is interesting. So we have a couple of technical questions. Yeah. The first is that so sorry. At the beginning, you mentioned about the liquid and the fact that your technology allows you to have such the DNA and the liquid. Can you explain a little bit more about why that's important? Yeah, I mean, basically, if you most of the the first understanding we have of DNA comes from crystal structures, mm -hmm. and that's the Nobel Prize, the famous right. Watson Crick structure. Right. Um, so, but these are structures in crystal that are not in the native environment of the DNA. The fact that these technologies are able to see the DNA in the native environment means like the DNA is moving, is active, is not frozen, and it's actually okay. having all the function that it has in the body. So that enables us to see living DNA rather than dead, dry DNA. And then can you manipulate it as well? Yeah, that's okay. right. Okay. So, so techniques like atomic force microscope and optical tweezers, people are grabbing it, winding it, studying how proteins, for example, that bind to DNA, uh, are feeling how soft and hard they are, right. how the charge affects, how the water affects. So it's letting us play with DNA, really this reverse engineering okay. of, of the biomolecule. So when you talk at the end about how it's difficult to assess toxicity because of all the various factors that can be attributed yeah. to it, what about the possibility of actually allowing the nanoparticles to mutate themselves so that you could have, you know, a circle shape, right, to do one, but if it was that toxic, you could have it at a certain time. Actually, that's a very interesting idea, and, and people are starting to explore these ideas. Okay. Actually, one of the ways of producing nanoparticles that might be most interesting is to learn, to, to teach, or to actually use properties of bacteria to create nanoparticles. People are finding bacteria that are able to create nanoparticles if you feed them metals or you feed oh, them things and they're all in the same shape. Okay. And that actually some bacteria may have evolved in natural environments with nanoparticles, mm. natural nanoparticles, and they know how to deal with this. So right. I think there's a great potential of microbiology right. for nanotechnology. And some pioneers around the world are starting this and it's really fascinating. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association, Oxfordshire Branch. Join us next month when Joey O'Gorman will speak on creativity and scientific knowledge.